title, Chuck, is What About the Future? To open in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we approach your word that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we'd see your word truly as the mirror for our souls, so we can look and see what needs to change in our lives and what your principles are and how to order our steps and how to make plans. <clears throat> we realize that you call it the mirror and that you call it the perfect law of liberty. And that you call it your inerrant word. And we ask that as we approach your word, we'd see it in those ways. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> James chapter 4, we finished up through uh, verse 12 last week, or week before last, I can't remember now. Uh, verses 13 through 17, tail end of the chapter, is what we're going to read today. We're going to talk about making plans. <clears throat> What about the future? What's the future hold? We humans are constantly making plans. We have day planners that you can buy that have all these little cool places to write down what you think you're going to do. Uh, we have year planners and businesses usually have a business plan that will at least stretch out a year or more. And businesses in our country think they're doing pretty good if they have a five-year business plan. I've been told, I was in a business class, and I was told that Japanese companies frequently have 100-year business plans. And I think, give me a break. You don't know what's going to happen 100 years from now. You don't know what kind of wars or plagues or famines or earthquakes or anything else might happen and change your plans. What do you think you're doing trying to make your business? I mean, your business isn't going to last 100 years. You know, what, what do you think you're doing? But we do that. We make plans. <clears throat> To me, it just boggles my mind to think that you could try to make a 100-year plan for anything. Uh, but James reflects that reality here. Let's read verses 13 through 17. I'm reading from the King James. You can follow along in whatever you're comfortable with. <clears throat> go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city. We will continue there for a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. You don't even know what's happening tomorrow, let alone next year. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. <clears throat> And that seems a little bit of a balance from verse 16 to 17, but we need to see how this all fits together. It'd be an easy shift in our thinking to just say, okay, I'm going to tack on, if the Lord wills, on everything I say. And that way I'm in keeping with this. Oh, kind of, yeah. But if what you're really thinking is, okay, my hope is, this is what I think I'd like to do. I think this will work. I think this is within God's plan. But I recognize that he's the one in control, not me. Well, then you are humbling yourself at least enough to recognize he's the one who's in control, not me. I don't have any real control over my life. And he says that when I think I do have control over my life, that that boasting is evil. It does require at least some humility to recognize I really don't know. And I hope to do these things. 
But God could change my plans. God's in control, not me. <clears throat> so we don't think of our grand plans as boasting. Each of us has, at one time or another, had a great idea, and this is what I'm going to do, and we're just going to take charge of our life and make things better. Make more money, get a different education, whatever. Uh, and <clears throat> the fact is, we don't have control. I don't have any control, really, over my life. Uh, our lives are completely under God's control for good or bad. Ann and I knew a young woman years ago that beautiful young Christian woman, godly young woman, had her whole life before her, everybody thought. And one day she slipped on an icy sidewalk, smacked her head, and the bleeding on her brain killed her. Now, was she in sin? No. She was a godly young woman doing what she was supposed to be doing, full of joy, full of life. Had a good testimony before the Lord. He took her home. He, she graduated early. Okay, it wasn't punishment. To the rest of the family, I'm sure it felt that way. To us, as we're praying for my cousin, we feel like, why, Lord? He's a godly man. He's, yeah, he's an architect, but he specializes in building churches. You know, he's, he, his life is pretty much centered on who Jesus is. We don't have control over our lives. This young lady we know, her name was Shar. She's home with Jesus. That's all. She graduated early. <clears throat> Isn't that what we're all looking forward to? So it's okay for God to change our plans. We don't always like it. But he's God. We're not. Okay. And God says that our self-centered desire to be self-directed, there's where the problem is. The problem is not making plans. The problem is thinking that I'm in control and desiring for me to be in control. That's what's evil. And it has its root in what Satan did, in fact, that's how he quit being Lucifer, the light bearer, and became Satan, the adversary. That's what those two words mean. If you'll turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 14, if you have helps in your Bible, Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't, then it's a little bit off to the right of, of the middle. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> I'll turn there too. This is where we see the fall of Lucifer from his position as the light bearer, as the son of the morning. It's an interesting passage. <clears throat> he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Why? Verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will uh, ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Now you might think, well, how can Satan make himself like the Most High? He can't be omnipotent. He can't suddenly be all-powerful. He can't know everything, so he's not omniscient. He can't have all wisdom. He's not omnisapient. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. In what way could he make himself like the Most High? The answer is he wants to be his own boss. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be self-directed. He made five statements. <clears throat> See, all, all those five statements have something in common. Listen to them. 
that desire to be self-directed, to be his own master, and ultimately to supplant God is what he's expressing in these five statements. <clears throat> Number one, I will ascend into heaven, not by invitation. Each of us is, a, is invited to ascend into heaven. Each of us is invited to walk into the throne room of God by invitation. He wasn't going by invitation. He was going by presumption to take the throne. <clears throat> Number two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He's referring to the angelic host. He wanted to be in charge. Number three, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. That's referring to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place that God's chosen as his earthly throne. <clears throat> he wanted to take that throne. <clears throat> Number four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. That's God's position. He's the one that sits enthroned on the circle of the earth. And number five, I will be like the Most High. We already talked about that. He wanted to be self-directed. He wanted the he couldn't attain to the attributes of deity, but he wanted the position and honor of deity. He wanted to be God. <clears throat> so what those five statements all have in common is the statement, I will. I, I, I will. I want to be self-directed. And that self-will is what set in motion the sin that pervades our whole existence today as humans. <clears throat> he spread it, Satan spread it to the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. He talked to Eve, tricked her. She talked to her husband. He made a decision that affected all of us. All of us lost our position of being in right standing with God through his fall into sin. He lost his position of innocence. They regained fellowship with God through a blood sacrifice, if you remember the story in Genesis, and through faith. That's how we regain fellowship with God. That's how we regain a position of right standing before God. There's a blood sacrifice at the cross. We place our faith in that blood sacrifice and we're reinstated as children of God. But even as believers, when we sin, we emulate that self-will of Lucifer. What we're saying, when I sin, no matter how slight, when I choose to do my thing, what I'm saying is in this little sphere, I am master. I'm the one that's going to take charge. I'm the one that's going to rule in my life. I'm God. We don't think that way, consciously. But that's what we're doing. When I choose to go my own way, I'm going to make the choices here. I'm going to chart the course of my life. Okay. It's hard for us to think of that, those kind of things that way because we've been taught all our life that all those things are good. We read in advertisements, be your own person. Take charge of your life. Be all you can be. You guys know where that one came from. That's the Army's advertisement. Be all you can be. Be your own boss. That one used to be in the back of every magazine. They had a picture of this guy with his shirt tail hanging out and looking kind of dirty and getting abused by his boss. And they say, you take our course and you can be the boss. And I noticed it must be hard on your eyes because all those guys end up in the after picture, they're wearing glasses. Now they're in charge, but they all got glasses now. So taking that course must really be bad for your eyes. I don't know. Uh, but somehow they can throw off the shackles of authority, be their own boss. And see, that's... That appeals to our human nature. Why? Because we inherited that nature from our spiritual father, Lucifer, who chose to be self-willed, 
and self-directed. And we want to be our own boss. You deserve the best. That's not all the car commercials and everything now. Deserve? Deserve means I earned it. When did I earn the best? If you want to know what I earned, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, that's unmerited favor. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. No, I don't deserve the best. But this is the stuff we've been taught all our lives is good. They tell you to start your own business, be in charge of your own future, get rich, or at least richer, have all the things and all the relationships you always wanted. Why does that advertising work? Because it appeals to our human nature. It says what we want to hear. I don't know how many people at work I knew that got into some kind of a it was ultimately it was multi-level marketing, but what it was is they were supposedly getting this few months of training and becoming financial planners. And they were going to become, each one of them told me they were going to be independently wealthy within two years. Really? You know what? Last I saw, they were all still welders at Gunderson. You know? Didn't work out. Actually, probably none of them are welders at Gunderson anymore. The place is pretty well shut down. <clears throat> But it's hard for us to think that way because all of our life we've been told that those are good things. Be your own boss. <clears throat> so how does our enemy attack us? You notice that when Satan tempted and tricked Eve, he attacked through three areas of temptation. If we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When she saw that the fruit was good to eat and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. Then she took the fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate, and the result was that all of us lost our spiritual lives. We were separated from fellowship with God. Now, we've regained our position through Jesus' blood at the cross. We still have our old sin nature, and we can still be drawn away to sin. When Satan tempted Jesus, tested Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he used the same three areas of temptation. Food, says, if you're the son of, man, of God, turn his rocks into bread. Well, yeah, he was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. Public status, he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and prove it to everybody, because God will catch you. He won't let you get hurt public status. Where do I stand in the eyes of the people? Pride. And finally, riches. He showed them all the riches of the world and says, I'll give it all to you if you'll just worship me. Okay. Jesus successfully resisted that temptation, turned it away by the written word of God. Now, we have the choice to do that too. I can use God's written word as a means by which to stop temptation in my life if I choose to. If I don't choose to, well, then I'm going to have problems. <clears throat> but you notice those three areas were still the eyes, what looks good to me, the flesh, what would feel good, what would gratify my physical self, and pride, what feeds my ego. That's interesting because if you'll turn to 1 John, that's almost at the end of your Bible, right before Revelation, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, those are all tiny little books. So right before Revelation, <clears throat> 1 John chapter 2, 
verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that's the gratifying your physical desires, your sin nature, the lust of the eyes, what looks good. You know, we make jokes about that. Shiny. Uh, apparently there's movies where that comes into play. I haven't seen them myself, but I had to have it explained to me when somebody kept saying shiny about everything. Uh, and finally, the pride of life. Some of the Bibles translated the boastful pride of life. That's a good translation. That's, it's not just how you feel. It's how you want to appear to everybody else. So those three areas of temptation are still how Satan tricks us today. He draws us away into sin using those three weapons against us. Why? Well, because there's a part of us that says, I did it my way. Yeah, it's kind of a famous song, wasn't it? I think Sinatra sang that. I did it my way. It's a very common failing. It's virtually universal among humans. We want to do things our way. We don't like being told what to do. And we don't like being seen as being subservient to anybody else. We want to be the boss. Okay, So with that warning in mind, we need to change how we approach life. What can I do differently then? Is it wrong to make plans? No, it's not. When God says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, does that preclude my making plans? No, because the rest of the verse, verse 6, says... Uh, Learn all heart, lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Okay, so in my planning, I acknowledge God, and I recognize he's the one that's in charge, and I submit myself to him so that he can direct my paths, so he can guide my mind, guide my plans, always recognizing that if I've got this wrong, I want you to change it. Okay? Jesus addressed that idea in regard to discipleship, saying we need to count the cost and calculate, sit down and calculate whether we can do the things we hope for. He gave examples of one preparing to build a tower. He says, which of you are planning to build a tower? doesn't sit down first and calculate the cost to see whether you can finish. You're going to get halfway done building and run out of money, and then all your neighbors are going to think you're a fool. Look, ha, he started to build that and he ran out of money. Okay used to be a building down south of here and off of Gaston, this huge structure on the hillside made out of gigantic timbers all bolted together. They never finished it. Uh, I know the guy that built it. He started it. Uh, he was building it with no permit, no plan, no just building it, and the government stepped in and said he wasn't allowed to finish it. It was solid. Those timbers were like, you know, 24 by 16 wood timbers all bolted together into this gigantic cube on the hillside uh, south and east of yeah, east of Gaston there. Uh, I think it finally got taken down. I, I don't think it's there anymore, is it? Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, Gordon Lynn built that. <coughs> uh, but he never got to finish it. On the other hand, a guy sent me a picture uh, last night or this morning of a barn in Iowa. It's massive. And it's made out of uh, clay bricks. It's circular, and through the center for support, it has a 20-foot diameter silo, 60 feet tall. And it's a three-story barn. The bottom barn, uh, bottom story was all for cows. The next story up was all for horses, and the next story held 200 tons of hay, not counting the 60-foot silo up through the middle. 
massive, still there. You can look up online, look up round barns, and that'll that'll come up. It's huge. Uh, somebody put a lot of money into that. It was built in 1912. I have to plan ahead. God says so. I have to take time to study God's word, or I'm not going to have anything to feed the flock. So I have to plan ahead for that. I have to be thinking ahead. What am I going to do? You know, next Sunday's coming. How am I going to preach? What is there a subject under this flock needs to hear? Or are we just going to plow forward in the book of James? What are we going to do? I have to be thinking ahead, planning ahead. There's nothing wrong with that. We have to plan ahead and prepare the soil for a garden if we're going to have vegetables or flowers or anything. <clears throat> we have to plan ahead and acquire specific schooling if we want to work in certain jobs or professions. And maybe, after all, once you've got the training, you may not be able to do that anyway. What if your training was to work on high-rise radio towers and it turns out you're afraid of heights? Sorry, that's not going to work. What if your training was to be a surgeon, but it turns out you always faint at the sight of blood? Sorry, it's time to change fields. You can't do that one. You want to be a commercial fisherman, but you get seasick every time you get on the water. I mean, my beloved wife here, she'll get sick standing on the dock, and I'm not kidding. If a little boat goes by and makes the dock do like this, she's ready to lose her cookies right then. Okay, she's never going to be a commercial fisherman. I used to be. I get sick on not quite on the dock, but I get seasick now too, so I, I could never go back to that even if I wanted to. So we each have plans we have to make, and this passage, the passage that warns us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts, goes on to say, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. So James echoes this idea that we need to recognize our frailty at the very least. We need to recognize that our lives are like a vapor. I, I don't know how long I'm going to live. That young lady that we knew, I'm sure thought that she had 40 years ahead of her, 50 years, 60 years ahead of her. She's a very young woman. <clears throat> we have grand ideas of the things we'd like to do, but the very least we can do is realize how short life really is and that we simply don't have time to do it all. I like to make things. My brother-in-law said, Chet, you can make anything. You cannot make everything. Why? Because you're going to run out of time. You have to use your time wisely. You can't make everything. I know you like to, but you can't do that. So not all the ideas we have are worth wasting our limited time on them. But if we start with a confession of our own frailty and the very brief time that we've been given within which to function, then we can begin to rethink our values and our choices and apply the wisdom of God to our plans, seeking his guidance and his approval as we do so. If I'm making plans, then I need, to, I need to allow God to be God. I need to incorporate his thinking and his wisdom into my plan making and recognize that all of our plans are subject to his authority and that things can change suddenly without warning. <clears throat> you remember Jesus talking about the rich man that had a bumper crop and decided he was going to tear down his barns and build new ones to hold all this food, all the grain that he had raised. Didn't want to share it. That wasn't even brought up, but what he didn't know is that was his last night on earth. And he said, thou fool, thou knowest not that tonight your soul shall be taken from you. He's going home. <clears throat> I knew a Bible teacher in 1975. His name was Ralph Hovland. He was a retired missionary. He'd been a missionary for years and years. Got too old to 
work on the foreign field where he had been, spent his what we would call retirement years teaching Bible in the mission, in the Bible school that I went to. I only barely met him. Uh, he died within a few days after the time I knew him. Well, he'd gotten too old to even continue teaching there, and he and his wife were going to move, I think, into a retirement home someplace. And he and one of his students were walking down the sidewalk next to the school talking, and he was explaining what his retirement plans were to his student, who uh, Scott Gutman was his name. And he got done explaining what their plans were and then said, but of course, God could change those plans at any moment. And at that moment, he suffered a massive heart attack and dropped dead on the spot. He went home. Welcome home. See, he recognized all along that God could change his plans. He'd already served God with his whole life and had this one last little, well, I guess this is what we'll do next, but God could change that. Boom, he's gone. And it had a, a terrific impact on Scott. He was really impressed. Here's a man that literally died in harness. He served to the last breath and went home. And he determined he was going to do the same thing. And he's a missionary today, as far as I know. I haven't seen him in years. But Okay, so there's nothing wrong with making plans. We're urged by God to do so. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and be wise. Consider her ways and be wise. Which having no guide, nobody tells the ants what to do. Having no guide, no overseer, no ruler, she provides her meat in the summer, her food, in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So during the summertime, the ants are scurrying all over the place, stacking up stuff in their burrows that's going to be used when there's no food available. And he says, make plans. Use your time wisely. Nothing wrong with that. We're given ample instructions as to preparing for an uncertain future. Jesus said, watch, for you know not what hour thy Lord cometh. We know the future is going to bring, Jesus is coming back. How are you going to be ready for it? What, do we, what should we be doing? The question was raised by one of the people here in the church that you know, there's an awful lot of stuff going on right now that makes us think the Lord's coming back soon. What should we be doing? And we're going to be talking about that. But today we're just going to talk about just in general, what should we be doing? How do we handle the future? So each of us has... The warning of verse 17, here in James 4, 17, it says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. See, Ralph Hovland did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was fully prepared for an uncertain future, and it did change without warning. Each of us has this warning. Uh, now, in so doing, when, when it, James gave this verse, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That happens to be one of the four New Testament definitions of sin. One of them in 1 John says that sin is the transgression of the law. Another also in 1 John says that all unrighteousness is sin. So it doesn't have to be something you specifically recognize as defying God's law. If it's unrighteousness and you recognize that, then yeah, it's sin. A third one is this one where he says... If you know to do good and you choose not to do it, even though maybe this other thing you're doing is also good, if you know what you should be doing, you don't do that, 
then he says that sin, and finally in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Those are the four definitions for sin in the New Testament, if you didn't know it. So the thing I'm doing may have nothing intrinsically wrong with it, but if I know I was supposed to be doing something else, then this, in spite of the fact that it looks good, this is sin because I was supposed to be doing that. Here's an example. I knew a fellow years ago. Uh, I'm not going to tell you his name. Uh, I, I worked with him. He was an, a fervent believer. He desperately wanted to do God's will. He wanted to lead other people to Christ, and he was always witnessing and telling other people about Jesus. That sounds great, doesn't it? The problem was he was doing it during, he was an hourly worker, and he was doing it during the time when he was supposed to be working, and the type of work he was hired to do was welding, and any of you that have done any welding know that you can't weld and talk at the same time. You're under a hood and doing this, and the other guy's under a hood and doing the same thing. You can't carry on much of a conversation under those circumstances unless you just happen to be so close together that you can talk anyway, which is possible, but that wasn't what he was doing. He was walking up and down the line and trying to share the gospel with people who were trying to do their work, and he wasn't doing his work. He was eventually let go, not because of his witnessing, it's because he wasn't working. In fact, it wasn't even that not working that got it. He was in a completely different building from where he was supposed to be working, digging through garbage dumpsters to pick up cans to take home and turn in for money. That was not what he was paid to do, see. So the, the things he was doing were not intrinsically wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking cans to recycle. There's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel with people. But there is something wrong with if you're paid to do one thing, to do something completely unrelated. Now, if, if you're paid to sit here and be a security guard and they don't care what you do while you're waiting for anything to happen, that's fine. I've known people to study and get a college degree while they're sitting at a, a gate where nobody ever comes or goes and being a security guard. And they did their homework there in the security guard shack. That's cool. If your boss says it's fine for you to do that, that's fine. But they weren't not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing, and it just happened to allow them to do the extra things. That's fine, you know. We need to be looking to God for direction in his word. Okay, there's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with doing things that we think are good. But this thing about if man knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it seems that in this context, part of it is the immoral good, the, something that's morally right, morally good, that is ethically right. And if I choose not to do that because it's uncomfortable, because I got a better idea, then that's what he says is sin. Uh, sometimes we look for God's direction and we don't know how to find it. Uh, Ann and I both might see a need and both of us be moved to give money or whatever else to meet that need. Uh, but when we do, virtually always, both of us are moved that way, and it's the same amount. When we take that as, as God's leading, maybe there's a better way to do that. I don't know. I can't find a place in Scripture that tells me how much to give. I have to depend on some principles from God's Word. I have to depend on His Holy Spirit prompting us. And it's nice when Ann and I simultaneously come up with, you know what, we can do this. Because that, that comforts my heart and says, okay, I think that's from God. Okay? That's one way to look at that.
So the key is submission to God. Back in James chapter 4, verse 7, we saw it says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Remember we said Satan's not afraid of Christians. He's afraid of a Christian who's submissive, submissive to God. It's God he's afraid of, not you. Okay, so if you're not being submissive to God, no, Satan's not going to flee from you because you think you're resisting him. In fact, you can't resist him if you're not in submission to God. But in the tumultuous times that we're living right now, we have a special desire to use our time wisely and to make godly choices, as it truly does seem that we're getting closer to the Lord's return. We don't want to waste what little time we have left. The key here is that we need to be submitting our will to God so and if I can see from God's word what I think I ought to be doing, I can be pretty sure that's a good idea, but I still need to submit my plans to God because that might not be what he wants me to do right now. For instance, that guy sharing the gospel, sure, God, Jesus does say for us to be witnesses for him, but he doesn't say to do that instead of the work that you're hired to do. Okay, so there was a principle there that he was violating. We want to be using our time wisely. We want to be making godly decisions, making godly plans. The key is for us to be submissive to God at all times. We're going to try to spend some time soon talking about specifically what's going on in the world. I'm not going to talk politics. Don't get worried about that. I don't do that. But we are affected by what's going on in the world around us, and we need to be able to respond well to what we see going on in the world, regardless of when the Lord returns. So regardless of when he returns, whether it's today or next year or 10 years from now or even further down the road, the key issue always is that we are in constant submission to the Lord and alert to his direction and his leading. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd, we'd ask that you'd take charge in our lives. We, we recognize that each of us has a desire to take charge of our own lives. We also recognize that that is not from you. We want you to be in charge. We want you to lead us so we're step by step making choices and making plans that please you and that fulfill your plan for our lives and for the lives of those around us. We ask that by your word and by your spirit, by your constant leading in our lives through prayer, through interaction with other believers, that you'd guide us, guide our hearts, help us to respond correctly, help us to examine ourselves in the mirror of your word, and remember what we see there. Use your word to cleanse our hearts and transform us into your likeness. Make us the men and women of God that you've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen.